Our lesson of the day is from Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter. I will begin reading in verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Once again, I want to thank you for your hospitality. It has been a truly great weekend. I uh, thank you for the privilege it's been to speak to you this weekend and especially to bring God's word to you uh, here this morning in this service of covenant renewal. Uh, I do bring greetings from the saints of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, our home church. And again, Jenny and I have had a wonderful time with you this weekend. I uh, just really enjoyed getting to know uh, many of you and, and spend this time with you. Uh, and in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that he resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Uh, the cross is the center of the Christian faith. It's our most prominent symbol. Uh, it's used in our places of worship, like this cross right behind me. Uh, it shows up as jewelry. Uh, it's used in church architecture. We had the opportunity to go to the Duke Chapel the other day, and it's laid out in the form of a cross with the transepts, a very common uh, way of designing a church to reflect uh, the centrality of the cross. Our songs and hymns regularly make mention of the cross. Uh, lift High the Cross. I don't know if that's one you sing here, but it's one of our congregational favorites. It's really one of our signature songs and sort of our theme song as a congregation. But that's just one of hundreds, if not thousands, of hymns that Christians sing about the cross. Our sacraments are all about the cross. Baptism is uh, baptism into Christ's death. At the Lord's Supper, we eat the body that was broken and we drink the blood that was shed on the cross. So as Christians, we know the cross is central. As Christians, it is vital for us to understand the cross, the meaning of the cross, what happened at the cross. As a pastor, I must preach the message of the cross. And as a Christian congregation, you must receive and believe the message of the cross. As Christians, we cling to the cross. It is our hope. 
And I think one of the best ways to really come to a deeper understanding of the cross, what the cross means and what happened at the cross, is to look at the trial scene that preceded the cross. The trial of Jesus, of course, leads to his crucifixion. Uh, and, it, and it begins to show us the meaning of the cross, the purpose of the cross, what the cross will accomplish. Uh, the trials of Jesus really unlock what he is about to do as he goes to his death. So I want us to consider this morning, this passage I have read for us from Mark 14. Uh, we see here that the Jewish leadership has, um, they're seeking to put Jesus to death. Uh, they have actually been aiming to put Jesus to death for quite some time. If you go all the way back to Mark chapter 3, uh, which of course took place a few years before this, you find that after Jesus performed a healing miracle on the Sabbath, uh, Mark 3 tells us the Pharisees and the Herodians sought to find a way to destroy him. They were already beginning to plot against Jesus. Come to the beginning of Mark chapter 14, just after Jesus has cleansed the temple and prophesied its destruction. Mark 14.1 says, As the feast of unleavened bread was beginning, the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Now note here, they're not seeking justice, they're seeking to kill him. Now, they're not concerned about justice at all, they just want to put him to death. And you see this when the, when the trial finally gets underway. Verse 55, it says they were seeking testimony against Jesus. We know in any court of law, judges should be impartial. They should follow the evidence to whatever verdict it leads, whether they like that verdict or not. But here we see they've already decided the verdict before the trial even begins. They just need some testimony to give the trial the appearance of being legal. But very interesting. They could not find two or three witnesses to provide consistent testimony against Jesus. They could not find two or three witnesses who would provide consistent testimony showing that Jesus had done something worthy of death. None of their charges could stick to him. Verse 56 tells us many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Verse 59 repeats this fact. The witnesses were concocting stories against Jesus, trying to take Jesus' words out of context or twist them into something that would be worthy of death. But even their lies don't line up. Their lies are so inconsistent, there's no clear testimony against Jesus. These liars can't get their story straight enough to have evidence against Jesus. So finally in verse 60, the trial's not going very well, uh, so finally in verse 60, the high priest takes over the proceedings. He takes matters into his own hands, and he asks Jesus a direct question. He gets straight to the point. He says to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus up to this point has remained utterly silent as these witnesses have tripped over their lies. Jesus has remained silent, like a lamb before its shears is silent. Jesus has not spoken a word. But now he's been asked a direct question, and so he must answer. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The high priest asks. And so Jesus says, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. He then adds. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, in speaking this way, Jesus is using a number of different Old Testament titles to describe himself, titles primarily drawn from uh, the books of Daniel and Ezekiel. 
He is the son of the blessed, which means he is the son of God. He affirms this before the high priest. He is the son of man, or we could say the son of Adam. He is a new Adam and therefore the head of a new humanity. And so as the son of the blessed and as the son of man, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised king. But there's something very interesting about this confession that Jesus makes. This is a real turning point in Mark's gospel. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, whenever anyone has identified Jesus as Messiah, you know what Jesus has done? Jesus has told them to keep it quiet. Whenever anybody has identified Jesus as Messiah up to this point, Jesus tells them to keep it a secret. Indeed, it is such a prominent theme in Mark's gospel. It's called the Messianic secret. Mark's gospel is often called the gospel of the Messianic secret because Jesus seems to want to keep his Messianic identity under wraps. I'll give you a few examples of this. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus cleanses a leper, and then he tells that leper to not let anyone know what he's done. In Mark chapter 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and as soon as he makes this confession... Jesus says, do not let anyone know. In Mark chapter 9, after the transfiguration, Jesus has been up on the mountain with the three disciples who are his inner circle. Uh, He has shined in the radiant glory of God there on the mountaintop. The disciples have gotten to witness this. But as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus says, do not tell anyone. They're not to tell anyone what they have seen. But now, before the high priest, In an open trial, Jesus goes public with his identity. The messianic secret ends here. Now, why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons. There are a number of things happening here. But in part, it's this. In part, this is why the messianic secret ends here. Jesus kept his messiahship secret up until now in order to avoid mistaken perceptions of what messiahship actually means. For the Jews, they thought they knew what messiahship was all about, and they were waiting for their messiah, and they figured that messiahship meant victory and glory. Glory without suffering, indeed, glory that inflicts suffering on their enemies. They figured messiahship meant that the Jews would finally get their own Caesar, but a better Caesar, a Caesar who would one-up Rome. Uh, who would conquer even the Roman Empire. That was the Jewish conception of what the Messiah, what the Christ, would come to do. But for Jesus, Messiahship means the cross. It means glory through suffering. It means sacrifice and service. It means humble, sacrificial love. And so Jesus cannot reveal he is Messiah until he is at his lowest, weakest, most vulnerable, most despicable point. Only when he looks nothing like the Messiah they expected does he come out and say, I am the Messiah. You see that only when it seemed absolutely impossible for him to be Messiah does he say, I am the Messiah. Here it seems so impossible for him to be Messiah. Even his own disciples have abandoned ship. Even his own disciples have left him. And right at that moment, when all his disciples even have fled away from him, he comes out and says, I am Messiah. In other words, by affirming his Messiahship at just this moment, he's redefining what Messiahship means. 
He's redefining Messiahship to include his suffering and to include the cross. By saying he is the king at just this moment, he's redefining the kingdom to show that the kingdom and the cross go together. He's taking these familiar Jewish concepts of Messiahship and of the kingdom, and he is filling them with new and shocking content. And so, just as it appears he is cursed, he says, I am the blessed one. As soon as it appears God has forsaken him, he says, I am God's son. As soon as it appears he is a defeated rebel, he says, I am the victorious Messiah. As soon as it looks like Rome is going to crush him under its power, he says, you will see me seated at the right hand of the power coming in the clouds of heaven. As soon as it looks impossible for him to be Messiah, he asserts in the strongest possible terms, he is Messiah. Jesus has kept his messianic identity a secret up until now, precisely so it will be clear that Messiahship and the cross go together. So this will be unmistakable. The kingdom and the cross are inseparable. The Jews could not have fathomed this, but Jesus will make it all make sense. He is establishing a cruciform kingdom. See, with this confession, Jesus announces the kingdom is coming. Even though Jesus looks vulnerable, even though he is suffering and will suffer even more, really, Jesus is in charge. It's not the witnesses who are in charge. They can't even get their story straight. It's not really the high priest who is running the show, even though he's the one who asked the question. In asserting that he is Messiah and King, Jesus is saying, look, even though I'm the one on trial, I'm actually the true judge. Yes, Jesus is in the dock before the high priest, but he's really the high priest himself. He's the true high priest. He's going to stand before Pilate shortly after this, but it's actually going to be clear. He's actually the real governor and the real king, not Pilate. In other words... The cross does not happen to Jesus. Jesus happens to the cross. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is not some helpless victim here. Looks that way, but he's not a victim. Jesus is a volunteer, willingly laying down his life in love for a purpose. But there's more. We need to see what that purpose is. Look at what happens next. The high priest hears this claim made by Jesus, and he tears his robes. Now, I'm not going to demonstrate that this morning. Okay, I'm not going to tear my robe. These things are expensive. Uh, but the high priest here tears his robes, and he says, this is blasphemy. What's interesting is that in the Torah, in the law of Moses, the high priest was forbidden to tear his holy garments. We read about that this morning in Leviticus 10. See, at the very moment Jesus is going to play his role as true high priest offering sacrifice, the Jewish high priest disqualifies himself. How convenient is that? The high priest inadvertently steps out of the way, so now Jesus can take over as true priest. The old priesthood of Levi is corrupt. It's giving way to a better priesthood. The high priest is actually the real blasphemer. He's accusing Jesus of blasphemy, but he's the blasphemer. He's the one who should be on trial. He's the one who is worthy of death because he has torn his robes. Jesus is the true high priest speaking the truth, and he is the one who is about to offer the final sacrifice. And we know from elsewhere that with Jesus' robe, the garment they took for, from him before they crucified him was not torn. 
The high priest tears his garment and disqualifies himself. The garment of Jesus is not torn. But by this action, the high priest also shows us what will happen when Jesus goes to the cross. The meaning of the cross is hidden in the action of the high priest. Throughout the trial narratives, you have all these enemies of Jesus who are actually acting in very ironic ways. They think they're making a mockery of Jesus when in reality they're doing exactly what Jesus wants them to do. And so it is when the high priest tears his robe because in tearing his robe and tearing his garment, he reveals the true meaning of the cross. It's right here. Uh, we read about it actually in that passage in Leviticus 10 this morning. Let me review Leviticus 10 for us. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, have offered strange or profane fire before the Lord. The tabernacle has just been set up, and Aaron's sons go in, and they offer this profane fire before the Lord in the tabernacle. They're inside the veil in the holy place, and they commit this blasphemy, this sacrilege, and so the wrath of God comes out against them and consumes them. They are consumed by the fiery wrath of God. And in the aftermath of this, in Leviticus 10, Moses commands Aaron, after the death of his sons, and says, do not tear your clothes, in Leviticus 10.6. Tearing the clothes, you, know, you might wonder, well, why would Aaron want to do that anyway? Tearing your clothes was a common way of expressing grief or distress. But Aaron the high priest is told after the death of his sons, do not tear your clothes lest, and this is the important part, the reason, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. Don't tear your clothes, don't tear your robes, Aaron, because you'll die and wrath will come upon all the people. Why would the high priest tearing his robe bring wrath on the people? Well, I can't develop this in full. But I want you to know, there is a correspondence, there is an analogy between the high priest and the temple. This is something very clear that, that, that virtually all scholars uh, who study the Old Testament system recognize. There's an analogy, a correspondence between the high priest and the temple. Uh, the priest is really a kind of living replica of the temple. The high priest in his robes embodies the temple. He impersonates the temple. He's, a, he, he's the temple in human form. And his robes correspond to the veils in the temple. Now, we think of those veils in the temple as a way of keeping authorized people from entering into the holy place and the most holy place. And that's true. Those veils had cherubim stitched on them, reminding us of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out. And those veils with cherubim were like giant no trespassing signs, keep out signs, uh, you know, beware, do not enter signs. But those veils were also protective barriers between the holy God and his sinful people. In other words, the veils not only kept unauthorized people from going into the holy place and the most holy place, they also kept the wrath of God from coming out and consuming the sinful people. They were protective barriers. The veils kept the wrath of God from flaring out against the people. The veils were a kind of firewall or a wrath wall, if you will. Again, not only keeping unauthorized personnel out of these sacred spaces, but also keeping the wrath of the holy God in. If the high priest tears his robes, it is like 
the veil in the temple being torn. And of course, actually that does happen as Jesus is hanging on the cross in Mark 15. Uh, so there, again, there's this correspondence, the tearing of the robe of the high priest and the tearing of the veil. Those two things go together. For the high priest's robes to be torn means wrath is going to come out. The same wrath that consumed Nadab and Abihu will now consume the whole nation. And that's why Aaron is told in Leviticus 10 to not tear his priestly robes, because to do so would be to unleash wrath. It would be to unleash the wrath of God on all the people. But now, in Mark 14, the high priest has torn his robe. And so what's going to happen? What must happen? Wrath. Wrath must come upon all the people. The high priest's robe is torn, which means the temple veil must be torn, which means wrath is coming. But what then is Jesus going to do? Jesus is going to step in between the wrath and the people. He will take that wrath for them to protect them so they will be spared. He will become their robe, their holy garment. He will become their veil. He will become their covering to shield them from wrath. And we read from Leviticus this morning. Leviticus is all about the sacrifices. You know, people who are new to the Bible, who, who just start out reading the Bible, if they're reading in the Old Testament and then they get to Leviticus, you know, one question always comes up is, why is there so much dead meat in the Bible? Why is there so much blood everywhere? You read the Old Testament, and it's dripping with the blood of the animal sacrifices on almost every page. There's dead meat everywhere. Those animal carcasses do not point to a bloodthirsty God who must get his pound of flesh. That's what you see with the pagan deities. But what those animal sacrifices do show us is that God is a God of justice. God made us, and our lives are his gift. And when we rebel against God by using our bodies, the bodies he gave us, and by using the minds that he gave us, and by using the resources he has given to us in our way rather than his, in ways that are contrary to his will and his design, our lives are forfeit. We're dead meat, or we ought to be. But God appointed that system of animal sacrifices as an act of mercy. God says to the people, yes, your life is forfeit. Your blood should be shed. You're dead meat. But because I am gracious, I will accept these appointed animal sacrifices as your representatives and your substitutes. You should die, but I will accept the death of the animal in your place. A great summary of that whole system is in Leviticus 17.11 where God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make a covering for your lives, for the blood makes a covering for your life. The blood is a kind of veil, God says. It's, it's, it's a covering. So you see how this worked? The Israelites would bring the animals to be sacrificed. That's true. But God says in Leviticus 17.11, I have given it to you. I have given you these animals and for this purpose. I have provided the life of the animal to cover your life. I will take the life of the animal instead of taking your life. And the blood of the animal will be like a shield or a covering or a veil for you. 
The blood of the animal will be upon you to protect you from my wrath. The wrath of God will fall on the substitute so the people can go free. Of course, we know the animal sacrifices were just types and shadows of what was to come. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't really take away sin. The whole book of Hebrews is written to show us that. The blood of bulls and goats could not provide a permanent covering, a permanent shield. For that, they would need a better sacrifice. They would need Jesus, a true and perfect man, a new Adam, a new head of a new humanity who would offer himself as a sacrifice in their place whose body and whose blood would become their veil and their shield and their protective covering. What does it mean for Jesus to be our substitute? What does it mean to say that Jesus took God's wrath for us? I want to try to explain this to you in several different ways. One with a kind of old-fashioned preacher story about a family on the American frontier. Uh, this family was camping out on the American frontier and a prairie fire began to come over the horizon. And the flames of this prairie fire, as they were sweeping across the frontier, they were picking up speed. The flames were, as the, as, as the wind whipped through, whipped the fire through the dry grass, and this fire was just consuming everything in its path. And this family had set up camp, and they could see clearly that they were in the pathway of the blaze, and they knew they would not be able to outrun the fires. And so thinking quickly, they built a fire of their own called a backfire. And they built a little, they built a fire, and they used that fire to kind of encircle where they were, and then they stamped that fire out, and then they laid down in an already burned out circle of grass. And so when the roaring blaze came, came to where they were, when it hit that burned over area, it simply went around it. Because that, that, that area was already burned. There was nothing there for the fire to consume. And so the family was saved. They were in the only safe place. The only safe place from the flames was a place where the fire had already burned. And so that's where they took refuge. That's what the cross is. It's our backfire. It's our burned over area. It's our safe space, our place of refuge. The fire of God's wrath has already landed there. The fire of God's wrath has already touched down at Golgotha and utterly consumed Jesus on the cross. And so now when God's wrath comes again in the final judgment, as it will, those who are hidden in the cross will be safe. Because the cross is that place that's already been burned over. Now I have to tell you, and that's kind of a homey preacher's illustration. I heard that one growing up, all right? Uh, <clears throat> and I like it because I think it makes, a, it makes a fair point. But even with that understanding... People do not like all this talk about God's wrath. People today, especially, have a very hard time accepting a God who shows wrath. It seems unworthy of God. It, it, it sounds like we're paganizing the gospel, this kind of wrath. Isn't that something for pagan gods, not for uh, uh, the true God, a God of love? And I have found just in the last few years, even uh, in, in surprising places in the church, this has become very controversial. So I want to expound on this a little bit further. Okay? You're getting a sermon this morning on wrath. How is that? Okay? What did the preacher preach on? He preached wrath. Okay? <clears throat> I don't know about the brimstone part, but I got the fire part. All right? What is God's wrath? God's wrath is really just the reaction, the reflex of his holiness, justice, and love to sin. That is, God hates anything that defaces 
or mars his good creation he loves his creation so anything that defaces or or vandalizes his creation he hates it god shows wrath because he loves indeed his wrath is a function of his love wrath is not the opposite of love it's an expression of love against whatever threatens the beloved if I'm walking downtown with my wife and a mugger comes up to attack her, I'm instantly angry at the mugger and I'm going to fight against him. Why? Because I love my wife. And I want to protect her and stand between her and whatever would destroy her or harm her. That's God's wrath. God's wrath is God fighting back against evil, destroying whatever would destroy his good creation. And I think we all get this, actually. You know, we have a saying. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, God is paying attention. And God has plenty to be angry about. There is plenty that is defacing and mooring God's good creation. And he is angry about it. And he's angry precisely because he loves us and he loves his creation so much. He gets angry because he loves. He gets angry because he is just and righteous. So let's see if we can be clear about how the cross works. Wrath does not cause the cross. God is not motivated by wrath. Indeed, again and again, we see that love is given as the reason for the cross. Why did the Father send the Son to the cross? Why did the, why did the Son willingly go fulfill His Father's will? Because of love. The love of the Father and the love of the Son. John 3, 16, we all know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or Galatians 2, 20, Paul says, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Or 1 John 4, 10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation has to do with turning aside wrath. A propitiation is a wrath covering. The wrath is not the motivation for the cross, it's the outcome of the cross. The cross happens because of God's love. Romans 5a, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the logic of the cross runs something like this. God hates sin because it threatens the creation he loves and the people he loves. And so God destroys sin with his wrath. But how can God destroy sin without destroying sinners? How can God destroy sin without destroying the whole creation that we've infected with our sin? Well, God does it through the death of his son. His son bears the wrath we all deserve because he becomes our sin bearer, our representative, our substitute. God's wrath destroys sin and God does this because he loves us and he wants to save us from sin there is a very real sense in which we have to be saved from the wrath of God because we know we deserve the wrath of God we're part of the problem we have defaced and marred God's creation in a way so we have to be saved from God's wrath but there's also a very real sense in which God's wrath saves us because in his wrath God destroys what would destroy us that's what God's wrath is his loving power and justice destroying whatever would destroy the people he loves and that's why the cross is all about God forgiving evil God defeating evil God destroying evil you see what God does for us on the cross 
God does all of these things ultimately by condemning sin in the flesh of his son. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 8. He condemns sin in the flesh of his son, thereby absorbing his own wrath. God does not inflict wrath on those who most deserve it. Then he would destroy us as well, and there would be no salvation. Rather, God endures the wrath himself. So on the cross, God's love collides head-on with human brutality and wickedness. And God pays everything we owe so our wickedness can be forgiven. And God destroys evil so evil can be undone. Now, let me see if I can give you another analogy of what God is doing on the cross. Let's say someone damages your property. And you forgive them. You say, I forgive you. And in forgiving them, you have released them from any obligation to pay to have that property fixed. But the thing is, when you say, I forgive you, that doesn't automatically fix the property. It's still broken. It's still damaged. But by virtue of forgiving them, what you have said is, you will pay the cost to fix it yourself. You will eat the cost, we sometimes say. That's what God did on the cross. We caused the damages, but God said, I forgive you. I will pay the cost myself. On the cross, God pays our debts in order to fix what we broke. He ate the cost. He absorbed the pain and the penalty of our sin. God sees the infinite death we, debt, 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 debt that we owe. He sees that we are utterly bankrupt and cannot pay. And so God says, I'll take care of this myself. He sees we can't fix it. We can't fix what we broke. We can't stop or contain or destroy the evil we let loose into the world. And so God says, I will do it for you. God loves, but he hates. God loves, but he hates our sin. God loves us and he hates our sin. So on the cross, what does he do? He pries us and our sin apart dealing with our sin and rescuing us. That's what the cross is all about. He destroys our sin while rescuing us from it. Let me see if I can illustrate further. This one's a little bit riskier. I'm kind of getting out of my comfort zone here with this one. Okay. Uh, think back to the 2008 financial crisis. You had banks where the CEOs, through mismanagement and uh, through greed, messed up and created a huge global financial disaster. And these banks then owed all kinds of money in order to, to, to fix what they broke. They owed all kinds of money. Bank of America alone owed like $17 billion in damages. Now the CEO of Bank of America was replaced, but no one would say, well, just because a new CEO came in, well, therefore you no longer owe that debt. No, they still owed it. Now in that case, you know who paid it, the government bailed them out with taxpayer money. Okay, so uh, we ate the cost, so to speak. But what if the company owed so much that the government said, there's no way we can bail you out? Hard to imagine, I know, but let's just say. The government says, we can't bail you out. A new CEO comes in and takes over the company, and he is not personally responsible for any of that debt. He didn't have anything to do with it. He is personally innocent, but now he is corporately responsible for the debt because he is now the CEO. 
but this is an incredibly wealthy CEO. The government has said, we're not going to pay it. He chooses to pay the debt out of his own riches. He chooses to cover the debt out of his own funds. In a way, that is what Jesus has done for humanity. That is what the cross is. It is the ultimate bailout of our bankrupt corporate humanity. Humanity, Inc. is bankrupt. Humanity Incorporated is bankrupt because our first CEO, Adam, bankrupted us. He put us into a debt that we can never pay. But now Jesus comes as the new CEO of the human race, and he's personally innocent. He did not accumulate any of these debts himself. But corporately, he takes responsibility for it, and on the cross, he goes to pay that debt. It is the ultimate bailout. That is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's really what what Jesus means when he calls himself son of man or son of Adam. He's saying he is the new Adam. He contains all of humanity in himself. And so he can act on our behalf as our representative and substitute. He can suffer our penalty and he can pay our debts. He can fix what we broke on our behalf. And so what does it all mean? What do we learn about the cross from the trial of Jesus? We learn that wrath is coming, but we learn that Jesus takes that wrath for us. He becomes our veil. He becomes our cover, our shield, his body, his blood. And so we don't need to live in fear of standing trial in the final judgment because Jesus has already stood trial for us. You see that? You don't have to fear the final judgment because Jesus already stood trial for you. You don't need to fear debts you cannot pay because Jesus paid all on the cross. Your debts are canceled. You don't need to fear wrath because Jesus absorbed wrath for you. The wrath of God has flared out through the torn robe of the high priest and through the torn veil of the temple, but that wrath landed on Jesus. And he is your covering. He's your protection. He has soaked up that wrath. He has drained the cup of its curses. He has destroyed evil. And that's why we now have a hope of eternal glory. This is why the cross brings in a new creation. This is the good news. This is why the cross is our hope. The Father and the Son in love have worked together at the cross, to deal with our sin, to deal with evil, to pay our debts, to destroy what would have destroyed us, to absorb the wrath that was due to us. This is the good news. This is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation, our rescue from sin and death and from the curse for all eternity. Let's give thanks to God together. Father, we do thank you that you sent your Son, and working together with your Son through your Spirit, you brought about our salvation, separating sinners from their sin, condemning our sin in the flesh of your Son, pouring out your wrath upon our sin, paying the debts that we owed but could never pay ourselves. We thank you for this bailout. We thank you all our debts are canceled. We thank you for the hope the cross gives us, that even now we stand righteous before you, that the blood of Jesus covers us as a kind of shield and protection. And now through the torn flesh of Jesus, we have a new and living way to enter into your heavenly sanctuary, 
a new and living way we can enter in to come before your throne of grace, your heavenly most holy place. Indeed, we're enjoying your heavenly presence this very day because the flesh of Jesus was torn on the cross to open up this pathway into your presence for us. Oh, Father, we thank you for this good news, this salvation that you promised to destroy all evil and that we are spared your wrath because of the death of your Son. We give you thanks and praise for this glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.